Good evening, culture vultures. What will a controversial, conservative, traditional Catholic intellectual and writer have to say about a story, a pornographic story that was written by a man whose name gave rise to the term sadism that was set in fascist Italy by a communist filmmaker? Well, we'll find out tonight. Uh, and first, I just want to remind you to hit the like on this video if you do like it. And remember to subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And even if you have subscribed to the channel, please uh, make sure that you're still subscribed because I have received messages from friends who say that they have subscribed to the channel, but then they have become unsubscribed automatically by no action of their own. So make sure that that still works. And uh, also follow us on Twitter, which is real underline GTK for Guide to Culture. We post uh, daily updates there. And you can bookmark our website, guidetoculture.org, for the full schedule for the Decameron Film Festival. And we also have a Telegram channel now for daily updates, and all the links are below. And please remember Entropy, because our work and this channel depends on uh, your support. And if you have questions for the guest, or if you just want to send us a donation, which is needed and very much appreciated, you can do that through Entropy and just click Send Paid Chats. And we read all Entropy messages at the end of every live stream. So uh, please remember to do that. If you have any questions for uh, Dr. Jones, who I'm going to introduce in just one second, uh, you can send them through Entropy. So over to the guest for this episode. All the shows so far, all the episodes have exceeded my expectations. They have been very good, but I think that this episode in particular has been very much anticipated, not least because our guest was supposed to speak at one of uh, my conferences that was supposed to be uh, just a week from now, uh, which has been postponed because of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, but also because he is a, he's a, always a very interesting speaker. So it's going to be very interesting to hear what he has to say. So very welcome to Guide to Culture, Dr. E. Michael Jones. I will unmute you now. Sorry about that. There we go. You're unmuted. Thank you, Frody. So uh, you are a PhD in literature, you are an active writer, you've written on many subjects that have to do with the downfall of the West. Can you just tell the audience where they can find your work and how they can support you? Yeah, you can go to uh, culturewars.com. Uh, all of my work is available there. And if you go there, you can buy a copy of my most recent book. Here's a copy of it right here. It's called Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. And it's about the history of everything from the beginning, from creation to the day before yesterday. So um, that's that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing right now. Great, so, great way to spend your time locked down wherever you are. Read the book. <laughs> it will give you hope. Right. Good. So uh, this was an interesting choice of film. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, we have had a variety of films on this festival. We have 30 guests and we've had everything from like mainstream big movies like Lord of the Rings to uh, more underground things like Tales from the Gimli Hospital and so on. This was a very interesting choice. Uh, do you want to say why you wanted to talk about it? Yeah, because it's about a, a lockdown of, of sorts. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, Pasolini's, Pier Paolo Pasolini's final film, an Italian yeah. uh, film director who uh, was uh, became famous in the 70s, uh, had done uh, a number of films up to this time. And uh, uh, basically, uh, what, is, what is the situation here? We're locked down. We're in a, we're in a building. Uh, we're by force to stay in a building. We're, we're, in a sense, under house arrest. And what you saw here was the end of the, uh, the end of the world, sort of, for the Italian fascist regime. It's the end of World War II. You can hear in the background of the film, there are these bombers flying over. The end is near. They had to retreat from Rome. And uh, these are the, the oligarchs. 
and uh, they retreat into this mansion and they take with them all the attractive uh, young men and women they can find. And so this is in many ways uh, Pasolini's comment on uh, sexual liberation. He was part of that wave. Uh, and at 1975, when this film came out, it reached a crucial, a crucial juncture. Um, he understood, I think, in a way that's important for us to understand that if you, if you decide that you're going to be part of uh, sexual liberation, it will take it will take place, uh, but but not on your terms. And I think Pasolini was bright enough to understand that this crucial moment that it was going to take uh, take place. It was going to happen on the terms that the oligarchs set. And I think that's exactly what what's happening now. You have a similar situation. There's a, they round up these attractive young people. Uh, who are at this point, let's say the 1970s, the main audience for sexual liberation. Okay. And they take them this, to this secluded uh, castle in the Italian countryside. And then the, 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 the leader here gives a speech. And the speech is sort of, ta it's taken from the Marquis de Sade. All of the thoughts are taken from the Marquis de Sade, whose, whose book, it's, that was his final book. It was his uh, summation of a life of sexual decadence. And uh, it, what what he said in a nutshell is, uh, first of all, any any type of religious service is going to be punished by death, mm. and also any act of heterosexual intercourse is going to be punished <laughs> by death. Well, wait a minute. I started to think this sounds familiar. This sounds familiar. We are now uh, locked down. Uh, in our houses, we can't. I we can't go to church. The, the the all of the churches have been shut down, and at the same time, uh, one of the big news stories is that Pornhub is going to offer free uh, porn subscriptions <laughs> to everyone in lockdown. They've started off in Italy, and they were so big-hearted they're going to extend this to the entire world. So what what you're seeing here is what whether there's a coronavirus or not, or how dangerous it is or not, or whether it's been weaponized or not. The social engineers are at work telling us how to what, what to do. And what they're doing is, is just an extreme version of the world that they've already prepared for us. And what's, what is that world? It's a world of, uh, where, of transient, sterile relationships. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's the world that they want. That's why they promote the homosexual as the, the proxy warrior, as the proxy warrior of the oligarchs. This is the ideal citizen. It's become the ideal citizen in the United States. The United States rules the world. And so in some sense or other, it's become the ideal citizen throughout the world. This is the world that uh, they have imposed on us. And uh, this is the world that uh, we, we better get used to in, in lockdown. So that, that's why I chose Pasolini's uh, silo. So, uh, I mean, like you mentioned, uh, and I also mentioned in the introduction, it's based on the Marquis de Sade's 120 days in Sodom. Uh, shall we say something about the Marquis de Sade before we come into the Pasolini film? Yeah, well, he's the man who started the French Revolution. So he was mm -hmm. a, a, a monster uh, who, who uh, basically uh, terrorized his wife and everyone near him. Uh, was involved in one sexual, uh, destructive sexual encounter after another. And so his uh, mother-in-law got him committed to prison. They had uh, something called a lettre de cachet at that time, which meant if you were a threat to the human race, uh, you could be in, uh, imprisoned. And that's precisely what happened. He was imprisoned in the Bastille. And he used the time to write uh, probably the underground classic of the 19th century, which was uh, Justine. Uh, mm -hmm. a, uh, something that uh, everyone read, all, all the literati, Byron and Shelley and all those people read it. Uh, and uh, he, he was living the life of a, an imprisoned literary man when suddenly a mob showed up outside his window and he started haranguing the mob and they stormed the Bastille and that was the French Revolution. So he was the man who started the French Revolution, but he was in many ways also the theoretician of the French Revolution. Uh, through Justine, which is pornography, but also so all sorts of uh, ruminations on the nature of man, 
And he was influenced by a book called uh, L'Homme Machine, uh, The Man a Machine. So it's a completely materialistic worldview. And mm-hmm. the, 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 the bottom line for this material uh, worldview is that woman is a machine for voluptuousness. That's what he said. So women are machines that are supposed to be used for, uh, by men for their pleasure. That's his philosophy of life. Everything else is just little balls bumping into each other. It's atoms in the void. And uh, this was the philosophy that he was trying to spread. He felt that it was the basis for the philosophical basis for revolution. So when the um, when the um, the reaction broke out, which is to say the Catholics in the west of France in, in the Vendée uh, started the counter revolution and they're marching toward France. Uh, he wrote a, a manifesto to, to get the revolution going again. And he said, what's, what's, the, what's the, the engine that pulls the revolution? It's passion. And so uh, we need to, uh, we need to um, reignite this passion. And so therefore, we should display women naked in the theaters uh, to get the revolution going again. Uh, and that is the beginning in my, uh, the, I wrote a book, uh, the, it's the beginning of my book, uh, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. Because I'm saying this is the first, the first man who is basically mobilizing sexual behavior as a for, as in, in its political form. In other words, he's saying there's a political purpose to this, and he doesn't say it specifically, but the political purpose is going to be control. Mm-hmm. At this point, he's got a technological problem. Uh, if you have a big theater, you can get a lot of men in there, but the guy in the last row is going to have trouble seeing those naked women all the way up front. <laughs> if you have a little theater, everyone can get a good look, but you're not uh, influencing a lot of people. So uh, technology solved this with the motion picture. And at that point, the motion picture became the cutting edge of um, pornography. And, porn- and, and also it became a crucial element in the manipulation of the public mind uh, in, in this direction. So it was, it was the Jews in Hollywood who basically became the, that, that cutting edge because they were the people that were pro- pro- producing most of the films in America. And it immediately, they were always pushing uh, the, the, the borders, the boundaries of obscenity. The American people were upset and uh, there was a reaction. And basically the Catholics imposed something called the production code on the Jews in Hollywood, banning nudity, obscenity, ridicule of the clergy, lots of this type of stuff. And that held the, held the day for 30 years. It was put in place as a result of a threat of a boycott by the mm-hmm. Catholics. Uh, put in place in 1933. It lasted until 1965. And, and this is the, the interesting part here is this is where you come into play uh, because the Faroe Islands became uh, crucial in this story because the Faroe Islands, as I understand it, is like the uh, Martha's Vineyard for the Swedish elite. And so who shows up on Faroe Islands in the 60s? It's Olaf Palma, Ingmar Bergman, and another Swede by the name of Harry Schein. Doesn't sound like a Swedish name. It was a, an Austrian Jew who had... I, I think you probably have the Faroe Islands confused with something else. <laughs> Not very many Swedes, Swedes uh, on the Faroe Islands. Uh, Bergman, they, they, Bergman had a house on, on the Faroe Islands. No, no, no. That, that's that's in a different place. That's in in Gotland on Fårö. It's it's a different place. It's a very similar name, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Faroe Islands is is off between uh, Scotland and Iceland in the middle of the Atlantic. Fårö is is in the Baltic Sea, uh, right outside of Gotland, uh, which is like the big island in the Baltic Sea. But but yeah, it, the names are very similar. It's true. Okay. Bergman, right. uh, he had a house in Fårö. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, my mistake. But he had a house. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, and the, the three Swedes uh, there, uh, Bergman is one of the most important filmmakers of that, of that era because he, he was the one who had the idea that, uh, of what, what, does, what does a serious film look like. He had a lock on that. He had a great uh, uh, cinematographer by the name of Sven Nyqvist, a great cinematographer, and he just had that look. And these people then got involved with the Jews in Hollywood uh, in a conspiracy to break the production code. 
And the film that they chose to do it was uh, Bergman's film called Silence, mm -hmm. which came out in 1964. It was it was it was calculated. These people got together and they calculated. They decided this will be the film that will break the Hollywood production code. It will break obscenity codes all throughout Europe. Germany was a particular uh, uh, in, in particular was a place that, where they wanted to break the code. It failed in America. It completely failed. But uh, when you say, I mean, I, I expect that many people watching this will, will wonder what you mean when you say that, that it's a form of control, when you say that sexual liberation, that the Marquis de Sade wanted to use uh, sexual liberation as control. What do you mean by that? I mean, uh, determine your behavior. Have you right. acted a certain way, but in a deeper way, in a deeper way, right. because of the nature of uh, uh, pornography, because of the nature of lust. Lust darkens the mind. That is the traditional teaching of someone like St. Thomas Aquinas. It is also the biblical teaching. If you if you look at the story of um, Samson and Delilah. Samson fell in love with Delilah, uh, got involved with her. He's the most powerful warrior that Israel had. And after he falls in love with her, she gouges out his eyes. People remember cutting the hair, but he also had his eyes gouged out. And uh, mm -hmm. Milton said after that, he was eyeless in Gaza, grinding at the mill with slaves. So that's the point. You can't, you can't think straight if your mind is constantly obsessed with lust. That's that's this is the 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 this is the lesson that these people learn. This is the, it's it's Christianity turned upside down. So if uh, Augustine said a man has as many masters as he has vices, now he said that to Christians because he wanted them to be free of their vices. If you want to be free, you have to get over your vice, but you can turn it upside down, and that's precisely what the Marquis de Sade said which is if you turn it upside down, you say, if you want to control people, promote vice. And that's precisely what he was doing. That's what these people understood in, in an inchoate, inchoate fashion. Uh, first of all, developed by, by Jews over the course of the 19th century who were uh, involved as pimps mm -hmm. uh, in big cities in Europe. And their victim would be uh, young aristocrats coming into town. They would get them involved with prostitutes. Uh, the, the, the aristocrats would spend all their money. And then the, the, the Jews would get them into debt. They'd lend them money. And this is the way they would control people. It all comes back to this fundamental understanding of yourself as a rational creature. If you're a mm -hmm. rational creature, uh, morality is practical reason. If you liberate yourself from the th reason, you're liberating yourself from the thing that makes you free, and that turns you into a slave. And I'm saying Christianity understood that and so therefore promoted morality and therefore freedom, but the people who were the revolutionaries turned that upside down because they're interested in control, because there are only two options in life. Okay, there, there is the city of God and there is the city of man. Okay, and the city of God is based on love and service to other people. If that's the case, the city of man has to be based on the opposite, which is control of other people. For I think your, your, your mic is muted. You have to... Uh, there's a problem with your microphone. Maybe you could see if it's, it says here that it's uh, not connected. Could you make sure that the microphone is connected? Sorry about that, folks out there. Technical issues. There is some issue with uh, Dr. Jones. His microphone is not connected at the moment, it sounds like or looks like. So... Yeah, this has been, this is an interesting conversation. This is, uh, uh, I was very curious what his take was going to be. Hopefully we'll have him back soon with audio. I think your microphone is not connected. Do you, can you check if, 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 the, if it's plugged in properly in the computer? So... 
we were talking about sexuality as social control. I'm not really sure what's going on. He's back and the microphone is back. Can you say something? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, now? you're back. Very good. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, you were saying, yeah, uh, the Marquis de Sade. So, so you mean that he wasn't just writing like pornography or like silly stories or whatever. He had a political agenda. Absolutely. The, the agenda was revolution. He was right. a supporter of the French Revolution, but he was like he was talking about the metaphysics of revolution or mm. the, the the psychology of revolution. And right. it, it goes back to, to moral behavior. I think he understood the dynamics of moral behavior. I think he understood what Augustine said. Uh, Augustine said a man has as many masters as he has vices. Mm. That's true. But you can turn it upside down. And so if you're interested in freedom, you want to promote moral behavior because morality is practical reason and we are rational creatures. We are only free if we're rational. But if you want to promote control, then you promote vice because people who are the slaves of passions are easy to control. They're easy to manipulate, especially when you have a sophisticated communication technology that can move these people. Uh, mm -hmm. move their passions and then direct them in, a, in a, pu push them in a certain direction. That's what's going on at this time. And I'm saying that the, the, uh, the, uh, Bergman, uh, Olaf Palma and uh, Harry Schein were involved at the beginning and they succeeded. They didn't succeed in America. Okay. The 64, they failed with the silence 64. They did succeed in Germany. Okay, they did succeed in breaking the uh, whatever obscenity laws they had in Germany at that mm -hmm. time. The, the Americans didn't break, uh, broke it one year later with uh, The Pawnbroker, which is a Holocaust porn film. Uh, you can look at it on, on YouTube. <laughs> it's the model uh, in many ways for all later Holocaust porn, including Schindler's List. Uh, but so I, so to get back to the, the, the beginning of our story, this is where Pasolini comes in. Right. So Pasolini's making movies at this point, and suddenly the rules have changed. Mm -hmm. So Pasolini uh, is, he's a communist, he's a homosexual, and he's a Catholic, and he's an Italian. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, how, how do all these parts fit together? Well, they don't fit together. You know, they're contradictory parts, but that's part of being a human being. You can also, you can grow up with contradictory parts of your nature and they come mm -hmm. out in Pasolini, I think in an especially dramatic way. So he does a film called the, the gospel according to St. Matthew. Mm-hmm. Do you Which, like that uh, one? I actually talked to, uh, uh, I was in, in Budapest and I talked to uh, a guy who was like a real sort of cinephile. <laughs> he really likes films. And he is, he is a very sort of traditional Catholic. And he said that, uh, that that film by Pasolini is the best film ever made about uh, Jesus. What, what do you think about it? Well, I think the Vatican praised the film. So the Vatican, uh -huh. first of all, at this point, Pasolini's reputation is as a communist, uh, a writer, filmmaker, uh, agitator, and uh, homosexual. So he's obviously not coming from an area that is normally sympathetic <laughs> to the Catholic faith. Right. But he has this, I'm, I'm saying because he's an Italian, he has a kind of residual Catholicism. It's uh -huh. the, the, the Catholicism is so deep in that culture that even when you grow up in rebellion against it, you're still part of it in some sense. Uh -huh. in, in, in some, he's, Pasolini in this regard is similar to Michel Foucault, who uh, was a French homosexual. He was, uh, grew up as a Catholic. Uh, France is another culture like that, where the Catholicism goes deep and even when you rebel against it. So when Foucault rebels against uh, uh, Logos, he does it in a Catholic way, uh, unlike uh, Jacques Derrida, who does it in a Jewish way. So Pasolini mm -hmm. is involved in all of these things. So he's got his own sexual compulsions that are becoming more and more difficult to control. There's this pressure now to produce a certain kind of film all throughout Europe. We're talking, if you be, talk about 1970, we're talking about the same thing all over Europe. Uh, but do, do you mean that, that that Bergman was was like in on this sort of political agenda somehow? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the political agenda, first of all, in Sweden, 
which is basically what is the agenda? It's the socialist agenda of basically it when we begin, uh, let's say after World War II, 80 percent of the Swedes live in uh, the, the in the countryside yeah. and 20 percent live in cities. And by the time it's over, that's completely reversed. And what the social the demo, the uh, socialist did in in Sweden was basically to move all of these people into the city. Reverse that. Now, 80% of the people live in the city and 20% live in the countryside. This is a massive experiment in social engineering. The mm -hmm. Swedes were responsible for social engineering in the United States. They had a guy, they brought a socialist by the name of Gunnar Myrdal over to write about the race issue in America. And he wrote That's a book true. called The American Dilemma. Uh, yes. A big book, 1,200 pages. Who can read? I, I actually have written 1,200 page books. I wrote a 1,400 page <laughs> book. But, uh, have you read that book, though, by Myrdal? Uh, so so Myrdal, uh, I, I hate to break the news, but he didn't write the book. I know he didn't <laughs> write the book. It was written okay. by the Psychological Warfare Establishment of the United States, and that meant people like uh, Louis Wirth, uh, who uh, wrote eight chapters in the book. Uh he was the man who created was involved in the social engineering of the American population after World War II. If you read Mirdal's book, he said, the war is going to change everything. There are certain freedoms we have now. We will not have them after the war. We will not be able to live where we want to live and, and so on and so forth. He listed all in that book. And then it was people like Louis Worth who put that into practice by basically busting the ethnic neighborhoods in big cities like Chicago and Philadelphia, where I grew up, through a mass migration of blacks out of the South. This was the weaponized migration in the United States uh, that happened there before it happened in Europe. It's happening now, or it was happening, not happening, no migration now in Europe, but it was happening in 2015. Mm -hmm. And the model was basically what happened to America. So this is these are the people that were doing this in Sweden, and they understood uh, that uh, socialism had a certain attitude towards sexuality. And so the enticement to get you from moving, one of the enticements, uh, other than, you know, new plumbing and stuff like that, is uh, if you move into these bone machine and these high-rise apartments, you'll be sexually liberated. And so there were certain films like that. Anita, uh, Swedish Nymphette by Joe Sarno, another pornography, uh, he was a, into pornography, did pornographic films. This was one of the films that was coming out at this time, kind of like it's kind of like a sociological study. And the sociological study uh, cover, the scientific cover allows you to uh, the license to have naked females running around in the film. They did the same thing in Germany. They were called it was called Der Schulmädchen Report. And they did 13 of those films. All of it is phony. First of all, you, uh, you probably know that report is not a German word. Okay, Bericht is the German word. And where did report come from? It came from America, came from the Kinsey Report. Mm -hmm. The Kinsey Report was basically about sexual behavior, changing sexual uh, morality in America. That made it over to Germany. They had all of these films, which were basically pseudo-scientific excuses for softcore pornography. Okay, this is where Pasolini comes in. Okay, so he's he's uh, he knows he's smart enough to know what people want at this point, and so he does uh, his three-part series called the Trilogy of Life, I think it's called. But the first one, oddly enough, is called the Decameron. Uh, and it's, 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 this is, this is the, uh, the best of these, por uh, uh, what Pasolini's <laughs> softcore porn films. Okay. Because it's based in the Italian middle ages. Yes. Okay. And he's got this, he's got this natural affinity to Italy. That's his culture. But he also has this nostalgia for the Catholic middle ages because it's like nostalgia for his own childhood for him. You know, he's a communist homosexual now who obviously has feelings about his childhood that get portrayed in this uh, this homage to the uh, Catholic Middle Ages where sexuality is innocent. It's innocent. Everybody's doing it. Nobody feels bad about it. Unlike Pasolini, who is tormented by his problems here. And uh, he shows up in the film. 
So he's um, Giotto. Uh, he's a character in his own film, and Giotto is the artist. And what does the artist do? He sort of brings all of this stuff together in some type of artistic whole where everything harmonizes. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Okay, and the next film is The Canterbury Tales, where he tries to do the same thing. And he, he doesn't understand England, and it's not as good a film. And then he does Arabian Nights, and he's completely out of his depth when it comes mm -hmm. to Scheherazade. Doesn't have any feeling for it. It's just a, a mechanical. And at this point, so we're now into the 70s. Every, every European country is doing the same thing. The United States, in this period of time, they broke the code in 65. The Jews broke the code. And then uh, I was I, I read when I did John Cardinal Kroll and the, the Cultural Revolution, I read the, the uh, correspondence between the Legion of Decency and the producer for the pawnbroker, Eli Landau. And he said, what this is going to do is have a, a new era of artistic cinema in the United States. None of this cheap Hollywood stuff anymore. We're going to have great art. Well, within seven years, they had hardcore pornography on first run theaters. Deep Throat is the most famous example, but then uh, Behind the Green Door and um, uh, Devil and Miss Jones. Hardcore pornography. This is the trajectory. This is exactly the trajectory of the 70s. And so everybody is set up in the same way. They all, the Schulmachen Report or Las Jochen Pumpel, they, they do these over and over again. And finally, in the mid-70s, you go from softcore to hardcore pornography. That's the trajectory. And that's precisely what Pasolini interrupts. The natural trajectory for him would have been to go to hardcore pornography. He did not do that. He did Salo. And Salo, I'm saying, is his meditation on where that was going. He right. understood. He was a deeper thinker than all of the hacks that were producing this type of stuff. Uh, he understood where it was going. And as I said at the beginning, where it was going was basically, if you want liberation, you will get it. But you will get it on the terms that the oligarchs set. You won't get it on your terms. Mm -hmm. And you won't have that innocent sexuality of the Decameron, to give Pasolini's example. It was not what it's going to be like. It's going to be uh uh nasty it's going to be vicious it's going to there's going to blood's going to flow here and i think that in this sense he is keyed into like the ancient wisdom on this topic because that's precisely the trajectory that euripides describes in the bake which is like the beginning of uh, let's say porn, the, the Greek tragedy version of porn, except that it was never performed. So they never got into that, you know, but basically uh, with the, with the Bacche, you have Dionysus showing up in Thebes and the women leave their looms and they start dancing naked on the mountainside. As soon as that happens, somebody's going to get hurt. This is the whole message. The Marquis de Sade understood that. Because the, the Sodom, the 120 days of Sodom are like, I, I, I think it's the normal passions, uh, the violent passions. But then it finally gets to the murderous passions, which means somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to die. And that's precisely what happened with the Bacche. Pentheus died. He was torn apart by the women. Okay. And this is, this is again, I think, Pasolini's vision of where it's going and where we are. Where we are. It got violent. Okay, it got violent at the end of the 70s. I just, I, just on a personal note here, uh, mm -hmm. I was at Earth Day in Philadelphia in 1970. I was there 50 years ago with about a million people like me in jeans and T-shirts at Belmont Plateau in Philadelphia. And there's this guy up there. And I'm in my kind of semi-comatose state there. And I'm thinking... This guy is one of the most obnoxious guys I have ever seen. And I'm really a tolerant guy. It turns out it was Ira Einhorn, mm -hmm. big Jew from Philadelphia, who was <laughs> Mr. Earth Day at this point. You know, couldn't get this jerk off the stage. He's just monopolizing everybody's intentions. So he's he's Mr. also Mr. Sexual Liberation in Philadelphia. Well, it turns out that uh, seven years later, he gets arrested. It turns out he chopped up his girlfriend and stuck her in a trunk. And the trunk was in his 
apartment and the blood's dripping down into the apartment below. So it turns out that uh, it was like sexual liberation by 1977, 78. It became a horror movie. And guess what? This is when horror movies started. This is the trajectory that uh, follows from sexual liberation. It leads to horror movies. Deep Throat led to Alien. And Pasolini is the guy who understood that. To he Alien. Yeah, you have to explain. You lost me there. Deep, Deep Throat led to Alien in what right. way? Alien is the sequel to Deep Throat. Okay, so first of all, what's Deep Throat about? It's about oral sex. Okay, that's the whole point of the movie. Well, right. what's Alien about? Alien is about oral sex. Have you seen the movie? I've seen the movie. I didn't okay. see it as as about oral sex. Yeah, but, well, you, but... you have to look at it again because basically <laughs> okay. what happens here is that uh, that spaceship lands on that planet and John Hurt is walking around and suddenly something attaches to its face, this monster stuck on his face. Well, what you don't see is the monster has a penis and it's going into the guy's throat. <laughs> Okay. This is this is uh, I talk, actually I interviewed uh, Hans Rudi Giger, the guy who created the monster, the Swiss guy who created the monster. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the the artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He died uh, not too long ago. But anyway, you interviewed him. I did in German. He was amazed that uh, an American could speak German. He, he didn't think it was possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, A very influential artist. Yes. But uh, so anyway, so what happens then is that uh, they, everything seems okay, and then he's sitting there. They're all eating lunch in the spaceship, and suddenly the guy's stomach explodes. Uh huh. Well, that was the that's sex. In other words, this is what sex is now. It, it oral sex used to be fun, but now it can kill you. And that's the message of Alien, and that's why suddenly you had horror movies. Following. So you mean you mean that Alien is a warning against uh, sex that it's, it's dangerous? It's a it's a recognition of the fact. Everybody knew that right. by the late seventies, everybody had a sad story to tell you. Like I got I got a venereal disease. I thought I was in love, but I got a venereal disease. <laughs> or I, my heart was broken, or I had an abortion. All of these are horror stories. And so Rudy Hans Rudy Giger gets together with some Hollywood guys, and they come up with a story. Everybody's relieved. Everybody's thinking, thank God someone said this. I feel so relieved. It was cathartic. And I'm saying this is exactly, so it's analogous to what Pasolini did. In other words, he's giving you the real story. The real story uh, uh, and why it's relevant today is it's going to be a lockdown and you're going to be tortured in one way or the other. Uh, and they're going to control you and you will have sex on their terms, which means you will engage in transient, sterile relationships. And if you don't, you will be punished. That's that's this is all exaggeration because we're talking about art which is mm -hmm. always an exaggeration to get your attention and to, to get a particular message across. Yeah. I, I mean, in a way though, um, I can't really see 120 days of Sodom, like by Marquis de Sade as a sort of advocating this because he's sort of what he's illustrating in that book is how ludicrous It is if you. I mean, if all life is, it's sort of like a parody of of this sort of uh, monomania about sex. Because if if all you do is is uh, like focus on going further with sex and doing more and more sort of uh, extreme things or whatever, this is the parody that that it leads to. I mean, well, what do you it, think was in the back of his mind? What right. do you say? This, this, these are people who grew up in a Christian culture. So what did St. James say? The wages of sin are death. Well, this is literally what we're talking about here. He's literally talking about that. You know, mm -hmm. if you embark upon this, uh, uh, this trajectory of sexual liberation, you will end up uh, murdering somebody. That's, mm -hmm. that's what Ira Einhorn did in Philadelphia. That is, that is what horror movies are about. I'm saying this, St. James knew this, and that's why he said the wages of sin are death. You, th these people do not have hegemony over these trajectories. They can understand them. They can. I think that that's the, the vision that why, why the, the Marquis de Sade is significant, because mm -hmm. it wasn't just pornography. He understood the consequences of pornography, and that's death in some sense or other. Let's, what do you think abortion is? 
It's it's the it's death. It's the the wage of sin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's basically sex leading to death. So one of the things that I find fascinating about this film uh, is that both both uh, Pasolini and uh, Marquis de Sade, really, I mean, de Sade, he was a pornographer, but he was also a very good writer. And it's the same thing with Pasolini. This isn't just like any sort of trivial sort of uh, sort of porn or, or, or whatever uh, film about nudity. It's it's also very well made. I mean, it's the, the, he he's a very he's very good at at like cinema art really i mean he, he he is very good at the craft and that is why it has that's why we're talking about it now like 45 years later yeah in a way I mean, that's that's part of it too but i'm talking more about the vision right had, you can be you can be a good craftsman but uh, you can right. also lack vision i think he had vision as well even even in his uh debauched state okay and he he had a problem you know, so this is this is part of the, the issue with homosexuals. Okay, now it's become an identity group. It, it's right. clear that it's part of identity politics, and this is a favored identity group. <laughs> it's like being being a Negro or being uh uh you know whatever, you know. And and the classic example we just went through was uh, the illustrious mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Who cares about South Bend, Indiana? Who cares about the mayor of South Bend? Well, it turns out that he was a homosexual and he announced <laughs> yes. he was a homosexual and this qualified him to run for, to be president of the United <laughs> States of America. Yes. I mean, if, if he had, if he had been a heterosexual, who would have taken him seriously? You're from where you're from yes. South Bend, Indiana, and you're going to run for president. Don't you think you should run for maybe a congressman first or, you know, dog catcher and then men president. Uh, but no, because he was a privileged group. Well, who created this privilege? Who created homosexual privilege? The oligarchs. Who created it? Who, the who did create? Right. The oligarchs, with with the help of people like uh, Michel Foucault, for example, Michel right. Foucault, who understood uh, it, understood this in his own way. Okay, so we talk. We're talking about sex leading to death. Sex normally leads to life. <laughs> That's right. what its purpose is. Okay. <laughs> But yes. if you turn it upside down, it leads to death. And the way you turn sex upside down is being homosexual. That's sex turned upside down. So it naturally leads to death as soon as you're a homosexual. And this is M- Michel Foucault was smart enough to understand that. And he thought it was a good idea, you know, a great idea to, to do sexual liberation and die as a result of it. And, you know, be careful what you pray for. God granted him his wish. And he died of uh, AIDS after unlimited sexual liberation in the bathhouses of San Francisco. But that's that's the trajectory we're talking about. The Marquis de Sade understood it. St. James understood it. And Pasolini understood it. And so did Giger in his way. The, 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 main, the mystery here is how can Hollywood produce films that promote chastity? Because that's exactly what horror films are. Especially if you look at a film like uh, Halloween, which started this whole thing even one year before, before um, uh, uh, Giger's uh, Alien. If you, that, what is the moral of Halloween? If you go, if you're a know. babysitter and you go and babysit, as soon as you take off your shirt, some monster is going to jump out of the closet and stab you to death. I mean, do do you think that that all? I mean, that horror films as a genre is about. Uh, is like a continuation of porn. It's the it's the understanding the consequence of porn of sexual liberation. I'm right. saying that's what horror films are about. Right, and it goes back to the, I wrote a, I wrote a book on this. Surprise, surprise! It's called Monsters. <laughs> Monsters from the Id is precisely this discussion. It's about Frankenstein, Dracula, and Alien. Three uh-huh. monsters based on three revolutions. Every time the revolution takes place, a monster appears because the monster is when you have a revolution, you unleash passion and the monster is passion without any type of rational control. That's why it's a monster. But in what way are those monsters connected to, to revolutions? I mean, Dracula, for example, in what way is okay, Dracula? The first one is first Frankenstein is right. the reaction to the French revolution. So Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley. Yes. 
Mary Shelley was the daughter of uh, William Godwin, who was the main proponent of the French Revolution in England. He married the famous first feminist, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, and mm -hmm. uh, they were. she was the child of revolutionaries. And then Shelley shows up. He's the aristocrat. He shows up at Godwin's door, and he says, uh, falls in love with Mary, and he runs off with her. Great. They're both teenagers. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that he already had a wife, a 15-year-old wife, uh, and he abandoned her. So mm -hmm. they go off for their literary holiday and they're reading uh, the Marquis de Sade. That's exactly what they're reading. They're reading Justine in that chalet on uh, in Switzerland on the lake. <laughs> okay. okay. And reading Justine. And so they, they're going to have their big literary holiday. She gets back to England and it turns out that uh, Shelley's first wife has committed suicide. So she's consumed with guilt now. She is responsible for that woman's death. But what's how can she say that? Because she's a revolutionary. She doesn't believe in the moral law. She believes, her, her father said, everything you think about is, or morality is just little balls, atoms bumping together in your brain. There's no morality. Well, then why do I feel so bad, dad? Well, because the moral law is something you can't erase. And so she can't say it's bad, but she can't say she doesn't feel guilt. So she creates a monster and the monster's Frankenstein. Frankenstein is based on uh, Adam Weishaupt because they also read the memoirs of Barrowell and learned that story while they were in there having their party in Lake mm -hmm. Lamont. Okay. That's the first monster. So the Frankenstein is a reaction to the French revolution. Right. Dracula is the reaction to the German revolution. All right. The German Revolution, meaning what happened after World War One, when Germany lost the war. And 1919, we have revolutions spreading throughout Europe. Uh, obviously, it began in 1917 with the Russian Revolution. But you had revolutions all throughout Germany. But we wasn't Dracula written decades before that, though? That's right. That's right. It was. It was written by uh, uh, an English... Uh, uh, Empresario, an right. agent, literary agent by the name of Bram Stoker. Right. So it's this is so Dracula's or Frankenstein's about electricity. Right. Dracula's about blood. We know that. Okay. Yeah. So why, why is blood such a big issue in Germany in 1919? Why is blood such a big issue? Well, because uh, 80% of those soldiers uh, went to whorehouses and they contracted syphilis right and now blood and so, so if you read mein kampf i know that's one of your favorite books but i if you read mein kampf hitler has a lot to say about blood and this right. is also what dracula is saying about and guess what it turns out that bram stoker had syphilis and that's what dracula is about it's about specifically about the man who can infect his wife with syphilis after having sex with prostitutes. So the woman is innocent, but the man has infected her and how this is too horrible to talk about. That's what, that's what Dracula is about. It had huge resonance in Germany and that's where the first Dracula film was made. Uh, and there have been a gazillion Dracula films after that. And so you don't like Dracula. <laughs> you don't you like don't any of the Dracula films. Yeah, well, you're not you're you're allowed not to like it. It's not a pleasant topic. No, no, I, I I'm I'm asking you if you don't like it because, because I I really like many of the Dracula films. I think the... I, they, it's not a I I don't I I only watch films I don't like. Ah, <laughs> so which films do you like though? I don't like any film. You don't like I, films I, at all. <laughs> I can't stand watching films. I'd rather read a book. But uh, the uh, the films there are films that I like. Yes, there it's true. But uh, these uh, these are cultural artifacts because if uh, you know I can write a poem all by myself, I can sit up in my room and write a poem, but you can't do a film by that, and that makes right. them important culturally because it's a huge collaboration. That's what this show film. is about: the importance of cinema. That's yeah. right. That's why it's important. So this again here we have we have Pasolini. Right. Uh, have an understanding of everything I'm talking about. It's as if he had read my book. 
because that's what he's talking about. <laughs> right. I'm sure he'd be flattered to hear that. It's not an instruction manual, right? <laughs> Your book. It, no, my book is reverse engineering. <laughs> okay. It's reverse engineering of, of porn and, uh, and, uh, and horror movies. Right. Well, one thing that I wanted to ask you about that, that, that sort of makes me curious that, that you, you talked about like uh, homosexuals and so on uh, is that uh, Ed Dutton, he, I know you've been on his show and he said that uh, it, it's been like through history, not just recently, that there have been many, many sort of homosexuals uh, attracted to be becoming priests, for example, in, in the Catholic Church, because you're not allowed to have a wife. So that would explain, you know, but do you, what do you think about theories like that, that, that uh, homosexuals would have had that role in society where they would have been, for example, priests because they're prohibited from have, having wives, uh, things like that. What, what do you think about theories like that? Yeah, sounds like something Dutton would say. Uh, I have a better <laughs> explanation. Uh, there was a, there was a, what you had during this period of time was the, the um, collapse of sexual morality across the board. We're talking about the seventies now. Right. Okay. And this affected Catholic clergy, affected everyone. It affected Catholic clergy. And so to make matters worse, there was a, uh, a priest by the name of Eugene Kennedy, a marital mm -hmm. priest who persuaded the bishops to do a sexual survey of the Catholic priesthood. Now, why the bishops went along with this is anybody's guess. It's probably because stupidity may be a, one of the qualifications for becoming for high office in the Catholic church. <laughs> so okay. it's bad enough that you're asking people, priests, these questions. No one has a right to ask these questions. These are Kinsey type questions, which are always invasive and always have an ulterior motive. So he surveys the priests and that, that's bad enough, but then he applies the, 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 the maturity scale of a Jewish psychiatrist by the name of Eric Erickson. Okay, mm -hmm. these are the six steps toward maturity. Well, step five happens to be sexual intercourse. You can't be a matured person unless you have sexual intercourse. Well, guess what? Every single Catholic priest takes a vow of celibacy, which means he will not have sexual intercourse. So that means every single Catholic priest is immature. Well, this is ridiculous, but it had a demoralizing effect on the priesthood. So what happens then? Makes them more likely to act on their sexual compulsions. Now, most people are normal, including priests. And so most people are heterosexual. And so they, they, they decide they want to have sex. They're going to, they end up getting married and they leave the priesthood. This naturally concentrates the percentage of homosexual people with homosexual inclination in the priesthood. There's nothing wrong with homosexual inclination. What's wrong is when you act on it. And so now, yeah. because of the, the, all of the wave of sexual liberation I just talked to, everyone is more likely to act on their sexual desires, illicit sexual desires, than they were 10 years before. And that explains why we had so many uh, homosexuals in the priesthood, why, why it exists to this day, why we have a problem. But, but you don't day. think it existed like in the past before that? No, it didn't. I know it didn't. I mean, right. basically, it's, it's the, if you look at the incidence of let's let's just say sexual abuse, which is an extreme form of mm -hmm. of uh, homosexuality. It is, first of all, most of it is homosexuality. What what you see here is that basically the Catholic priest is like a bomb crater right in the middle of the road. So before mm -hmm. you get to that point, like 1970, whatever it is, uh, the road's pretty smooth. Then there's the bomb crater. And then uh, by the time you get to the priests who are graduated from the seminaries later on, it's the road smooth again, which is the way, way it is today, except with certain exceptions. And one of the exceptions is the Jesuit order, which is now has a, a, a it's obvious that homosexuals have a controlling role to play in the Jesuit order. And the man who's most obvious is James Martin, who is forever proselytizing for homosexual behavior under the under the guise, of course, of these going to offer pastoral care to this group of people. Mm -hmm. uh, well, this has been very interesting. Uh, shall we go to to questions? Do you have anything yeah. else you want to say about? No, the, I, think about I've, the I think I've made my case. All right. Uh very good. So let me see here. We have a few donations and questions uh, through Entropy. So uh, let's go through them. Well, the first one is from 
reactionary in red sends three us dollars he said looking forward to this episode with dr jones cheers from poland thank you so much for that donation and thin the thin red line says thank you for all your hard work thank you so much for that and then the thin red line sends another one for 10 us dollars he says uh, e michael jones what do you think of lovecraft and edgar Allan poe Edgar, first of all, I don't. I've seen movies by Lovecraft. Don't have enough to say about Lovecraft. Edgar Allan Poe was a, uh, you know, an American poet who died uh, drunk in an, in a gutter somewhere, uh, and was really influential in France for some crazy reason. Probably because their understanding of English isn't that good. But he wrote a lot of what you would call Gothic fiction. Yeah, he was, I was. He was very clever at picking up, and one of the Gothic fictions that he wrote was very similar to what we're talking about, which is the, uh, what is the, what is it now? The, the red death, the, the plague of the red death. It's exactly, I, I quote this in the article on the coronavirus because it's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The mask of red death. The mask of red death. That's right. It yeah. Is. It's made and, into a fantastic film by Roger Corman, by the way, hammer. Yeah. Horror. He was, yeah. A kind of sh schlocky B movie guy. Yes. Uh, but, uh, but that's, that's exactly uh, what we're talking about with, uh, the lockdown, exactly. So he, right. he's he's a kind of guy who's kind of like a, a con flim flam man with a literary talent who just stumbles across a brilliant analysis of what's going on right now. It's exactly what's going on right now. Well, I mean, Edgar Allan Poe, he he did. I mean, he he basically created different genres of literature. I mean, he he wrote what was like the the prototype for Sherlock Holmes, which is Dupin. Uh, uh and the, the murders story. in hmm? the detective story yeah yeah with, with this sort of detective genius and like you said the horror stories i mean edgar Allan poe yeah he was influential in france because uh baudelaire was a huge fan and translated his books and wrote about him and so on right. but surely he's been very influential in the english language world with you know both horror i mean everything post I mean, he died in 1849, uh, and everything since then in, in horror fiction and definitely in detective stories, which is like huge literary genres have. So he's been very influential in the English language world as well. Yeah, T.S. Uh, Eliot wrote an essay on uh, on Poe, and uh, which he basically, he said what I just said, that they, they, he was popular in France because they didn't really understand English. And uh, he made. But he was a very good writer in English, though. I, mean, I understand English. Uh, you don't think he was? A, he was a very talented. Uh, well, what, what I'm saying, T.S. Eliot didn't think he was much of a poet, right? So, uh, and he he gave he gave the quote from I think it's from Eula Lumi, where Poe talks about my most immemorial year, right? And it has that kind of great ring to it. But then Eliot says, "What exactly. what the hell does that mean? What does that mean?" It doesn't don't, matter because it's beautiful. That's what poetry yeah, is about. <laughs> it's got to mean something too. Yeah. Well, many of these horror writers have, I mean, I, I, many of these, these, uh, yeah, they, they are very sort of, they have very sort of conservative, very uh, sort of very traditional uh, themes to them though. I mean, they, they're not horror literature. Do you think it's subversive? No, it's the opposite. It's right. very moral. That's what right. I said, you know, the, the whole point of slasher films is don't don't uh, go to, you know, don't sleep with your girlfriend while you're while she's babysitting because the, the <laughs> monster will jump out of the closet and kill her. So they are the they are the moral guards for, yeah. for our civilization. If I ever did a sex ed course, I'd have slasher films as the <laughs> as the main part of my sex ed course. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, we don't have any more entropy. Uh, questions. Uh, so if you don't have anything else you want to add, uh, I want to thank you for being on Guide to Culture. Do you, do you have anything else you want to say? Just, uh, you know, thank you for having me. I thought it was a great conversation we had. I think it was it was very good. I think it, everyone has enjoyed this. This has been fantastic, uh, and it's just it just shows the range of different guests and different films. And yeah, it, it's been fantastic. Tomorrow we're gonna talk about uh, Twin Peaks with Alexander Dugan. Are you a Twin Peaks fan? Uh, no. <laughs> okay.
All right. I give my well, regards to, to Alexander Dugan. I met him in Tehran about two years ago. So give him my You've regards. both written about the logos. Uh, is there That's any right. co connection between those things? Yes. Great minds run in the same circles. Okay. <laughs> okay. Logos rising. Go to culturewars.com and buy a copy. Okay. Thank you so much for that. Uh, so everyone out there, yes, uh, this has been very interesting and entertaining. And I hope to see you all uh, tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be on early in the afternoon with Alexander Dugan. And I also want to recommend you two things that are coming up. Greg Johnson is going to have a debate coming up. Uh, so check out his work, counter-currents.com. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting debate in the coming week. And also, uh, Tina and Yunus, they have a new show with lots of prominent guests, very interesting guests coming up. So check them out through their Twitter account, Tina Beek's Twitter account, The Swan of Tunela. Uh, you'll find all the, all the links uh, below. So... Dr. E. Michael Jones, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on uh, Guide to Culture, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.